Pastor Xavier Reese and the ups and downs on the journey of faith. The land was conquered by God. Never forget this. The land was under authority of Joshua and Israel, but it was God who had given it to them. And so there's never a place in our life where we can say, it's all done, I can do nothing. No, we must press forward. God had conquered, but it was a gift from God. The work is finished, but there's still battles, right? I'm living the life of faith. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Having goals and plans are important, but they only work when you follow them. And that's why Joshua exhorted the Israelites to stay true to the plans that God had expressed for them in His Word. And one of the best ways to accomplish them is by being faithful in gathering together in worship. Today, Pastor Xavier returns to the book of Joshua as he reminds us of the importance and simple truths of not forsaking the assembly. Let's listen. The message is entitled, The Assembly of Faith. Joshua has been a courageous soldier. Having received this command directly from the Lord, God told him not to fear, to be strong, to be courageous, to obey the word of God completely as he made preparations across the Jordan in chapter 1. As he conquered the land, uh, he gave the tribes their proportions of the land, the divisions from chapter 10 up to chapter 21. Now, when we come to chapter 18, there are still seven tribes that had not received their inheritance. So Joshua gathers a nation, a Shiloh, uh, to exhort them to survey the land and to send out spies again and then come back and divide it to the seven tribes. There are three significant things revealed to us here at the gathering of the nation. Let me read here. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Here's the three significant things revealed at the gathering of the nations here after all the conquest of the land. First, God had chosen the place of worship for the nation. Secondly, God had given them the manner of worship for the nation. And then God had conquered the land for the nation. It was all God's doing. Oh, how easy we forget. <laughs> Let's begin here. God had chosen the place of worship for the nation. Listen to his words. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. The significance of Shiloh is great. The entire congregation uh, has removed the tabernacle from Gilgal, gathered it, and now sets it up there at Shiloh. It was to be the resting place of the ark, which signifies the presence and the fellowship with God. That's what the ark signified. The word assembly there is the word kahal in Hebrew, and it's the Hebrew word that is translated in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, by the word ecclesia, which is the word in the New Testament for church, the assembly, the gathering. But Shiloh was a place of seat of government, where this is where Joshua had brought them into the land, a type of Jesus Christ, and here's where God has said, this is where I'm going to meet with the nation. Yet, there's another time that the word Shiloh appears in the first time in Genesis 49.10, where Jacob is prophesying, and it denotes the name of the Messiah, the peaceful one to come. In fact, the Vulgate, 
version translates the word, he who is to be sent, an allusion to the Messiah. The revised version margin says, till he comes to Shiloh. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew says, until that which, which is his shall come to Shiloh. So Shiloh here is a place, a locality, but when it's mentioned in Genesis by Jacob, it's talking about the proper name of the Messiah to come. It's quite illuminating. <laughs> God had chosen the place of worship for the nation, Shiloh. Notice secondly, God had given them the manner of worship for the nation and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. Now, the provisions of the tabernacle, as you know, are given to us in the book of Exodus between chapter 5 and 30. They're repeated and then later on again. But the, the materials that would be needed would come from the people, by the way. Exodus 25, 3 through 7. As you know, the source of these provisions was the back wages that were taken before they left Egypt. Uh, God told them to ask the Egyptians and, and they gave them. And they were literally not ripping them off. It was back wages. They had had them slaves all those uh, 430 years. And when they left Egypt, they were wealthy. The craftsmen would be equally coming from the people. God would call them. God would gift them, anoint them, give them talents. He would steer their heart up. They would respond. Now, the pattern of the tabernacle was also given to us in the same book of Exodus in that section. And from a far distance as you would approach it, you would see a courtyard. It would be 150 feet long on the north and the south, 75 feet on the east and the west, and seven and a half feet high, so you couldn't look in to what was going on. Then you would see the tabernacle in the middle of the courtyard in Exodus 26, a rectangular box, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, and 45 feet long. It was made up of two rooms. The first one was the holy place, 15 by 15 high by 30 deep. The second is the holy of holies, 15 by 15 by 15, a perfect cube. The holy place, the first one, the priest would go in for the daily ministration, for the bread, the light, the oil, all of that. But the second, the holy of holies, only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, for the sins of the nation. There were two curtains in the tabernacle, the one at the entrance of the holy place at first, and then the veil between the holy place and the most holy, the separated. The priest could not go in except for once a year. And God would meet the priest as he would speak to him from the mercy seat. Now the purpose of the tabernacle, the primary purpose of the tabernacle for the nation was that Yahweh would dwell and walk in the midst of them. This we are told in Exodus 25, 8 and Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. That God could dwell with the people. God wants to dwell with his people. He's our creator. The prophetic aspect would be in the inevitable future. Right now they had this rough looking tabernacle from the exterior. But the interior demonstrated who was to come in the future. One day, God would walk in human form in a human tabernacle with man. And he would be just like man, like the badger skin outside, common. But inside, he would be God. Interesting. The tabernacle was the heart of the nation. All materials needed for the congregation, this church or any other church, should come from the congregation. 
not from one person, a group of people, so that they're straining, but as they all gave, so we are prescribed in the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 gives you all the specific. Hilariously, we do because we love him. We do it not because we're compelled. And we go out of our way to make sure of that so that nobody ever feels pressured. But every church, regardless of the size, if it's 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, if the church, the people of God are obedient to do their part as God has blessed them, and that's between you and God, there will be enough to get everything done, listen, that God will direct and wants done. Not everything we want to do, but everything we have to do. You understand? If God's in it, he takes care of it. And if not, then we don't want it. The bigger the body gets, there should be more people available to do the work of ministry. With your talents, your gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, whatever it may be. We're here to reach the community. We're here to be a light. We're here to extend Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the world, if God allows us, in whatever proportion. I don't want to copy anybody. I don't want to be anybody. Just do what God has called us to do. All of the ministry should be raised up from the body. There's an exception once in a while, but everybody who's in the ministry here came from the body. They're raised up from the body. Because we're family. People who are serving the Lord. God resides in us. We're the temple of God, our bodies. The church, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And so we have to be careful that we do everything according to the scriptures. That's the only thing that we have. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable doctrine, correction, instruction that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Notice, thirdly, God had conquered the land for the nation. And the land was subdued before them. The land was conquered by God. Never forget this. The land was under authority of Joshua and Israel, but it was God who had given it to them. After the third and last campaign in the north, where King Jabon and his confederacy had been conquered, it says this, 11.23, And the land had rest from war. In 1415, after Caleb received his inheritance, it says, then the land had rest from war. The clear meaning is that the greater part of the land had been already subdued, conquered under their authority, and there was still some battles, some flurries that were going to be there, but they were already conquered. We've already had the list of the kings and all the places. And so there's never a place in our life where we can say, it's all done, I can do nothing. No. We must press forward, and we'll see this as we move on. The land was a gift from God. God had conquered, but it was a gift from God. Listen to some of the things that we've read as we've gone through the book of Judges. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melts in fear before you, Rahab said. In chapter 2, verse 24, they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into your hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before us. 424, So that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So fear the people in the land, but then fear inside the people of God. That you remember that you don't forget that you fear God. That you remember that all that you have, God has given it to you. When you enjoy it, that you know who gave it to you. 
chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and go up now to Ai. See, I have handed over to you the king of Ai with his people, his cities, and his land. 924. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we were in great fear for our lives because of you and did this thing, the Gibeonites deceived them. One more. 10, 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them shall stand before you. Whoa. He gave him the land. It was a gift. Yet they conquered it by faith. They didn't sit there with their arms crossed and twiddling their thumbs. Sometimes people think as Christians that that's all they can do. You don't have to do anything. You don't. Your inheritance is yours. But to possess your inheritance, to apply it to your life, there's some battles. The war is over, but there's some battles. <laughs> the land was secured then by the people. He gave it to them. It was conquered by God, but it was secured by the people. This is the flip side of that. The layout of the tabernacle, as you look down from bird's eye view, teaches us a simple truth. The tabernacle was the center of national life for moral, civil, and ethical. Leviticus 20 through 23 gives us all the righteous ethics and morals. You look down the tabernacles at the heart, you have the Levites encamped around it, then you had the other tribes around it, and you had a different way for them to break camp and all that orderly, and it was the people of the land who were going to subdue the land and who were to apply by faith the division of the land. Numbers chapter 2 through 4 gives us the layout of that camp of Israel. Now they're dispersed through the land. No longer around the tabernacle. But the tabernacle is the heart of the land and the people are all around the land. Same concept. Their national existence and survival was dependent on God. They would have to continue to depend upon God as much as they did when they crossed Jordan. You understand? The deception is to think, well, I don't have any more Jordans. Yeah, but you might have an Amalekite. You might have an Ai. <laughs> and look out for those Gibeonites. The psalmist, Psalm 312 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen as his own inheritance. You see, the tabernacle was not only the national life, but it was a center of religious life then. It was a place where God had chosen to provide the prescribed manner of worship, to be able to be one with God. Moses experienced it. Joshua experienced it. And the people of God. Worship is an awareness of understanding of God's holiness. As you look to God that he's holy, demonstrated by reverence, that's what's lost today in the church. And sometimes we lose that. We lose the fear of God, the reverence. And we almost treat God as if he's just a common person. Thank God that he's come down and condescended and become a man. But we have to be careful. Sometimes it's too flippant in the church today. It demonstrates that I know that I'm before someone who's a greater worth than I am. Worship. It's an Anglo-Saxon word that means to attribute worth to something. I think the prophet Isaiah illustrates this properly as King Uzziah uh, has died. 
And he says, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips in Isaiah 6. He got the right message. He's holy, I'm sinful. Woe is me. The first thing that I understand when I'm really worshiping God is woe is me. And once I say and recognize woe is me, then I can worship. <laughs> but if you don't say woe is me or recognize it, you're just acting like that publican that says, Lord, I just thank you. I'm not like other men. I tithe this and that. And he says the tax collector stood afar off and struck himself at his breast and just said, Lord, propitiate me. I am a sinner. Woe is me. Jesus says, this man prayed to himself. This other man went down justified. And so the tabernacle was the center of military headquarters also. Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord is a man of war. God is a man of war. What does he fight against? Sin. Rebellion. The Lord would have war with Amalek forever. Exodus 17, 8 through 11. Why? Amalek's a type of the flesh. Anything that rebels against God, anything that stands itself against God. The strategy was always to come to seek God. How, when, where? We've already seen Joshua. He went to the Lord. The Lord says, this is the way we're going to conquer Jericho. We're going to march around it every day. Then the last time, seventh time, then we're going to blow the horns. Then we're going to go in. The walls are going to fall down. Well, that doesn't make much sense to me, logically. But God is the one who set the plan. David went to the Lord. Lord, should I go up? Go up. And then almost the same scenario. Lord, should I go up? No, don't go up. So God wants us to come to him every time. How, when, where, why? We do things according to his time, his way. And so the tribes are called armies. The word means a mass of people organized for war. And that's how the word is used in Numbers 2. The people of God were his army. God is the God, a man of war. When you love someone, where you dwell is not important. What is important is who you're dwelling with and that you're sharing your life together with the one you love. You understand? And that's what it's all about. God has chosen the church to be his vehicle, you and I, not the building. And the fellowship that we have with one another. Jesus conquered the enemy. He's conquered the enemy, Satan. He defeated Satan at the cross, destroying his authority, Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He led captivity, captive Ephesians says, as he went down to the bosom of the Father. He tasted death for every man, as Hebrews 2, 9 tells us. He destroyed Satan who has the power of death in Hebrews 2, 14. He destroyed the power of bondage over our lives, over sin, and made us daughters and sons of God in Romans 8, 15. I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I can be if I want to. I don't have to be. He has made us more than conquerors through him who loved us in Romans 8, 17. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus as we sit in the heavenlies in Ephesians 1, 3. He has done everything for us to enter his rest and to enjoy it in Hebrews 4. He's done it. Now, Jesus secures our rest through the believer. He's done it, but there's still battles, right? And so 
We do not trust in ourselves for anything, but we're ever dependent upon him, as John 15, 5 says, apart from me you can do nothing, like that branch in the vine. The work is finished, but there's battles. I'm living the life of faith. I'm running the course. I haven't crossed the finish line. We're not to be ignorant to Satan's devices, 2 Corinthians 2.11. He's clever. He doesn't have many tricks, but the ones he has work. There's no why change the game plan. It works every generation. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Money. Pride. Material possessions. We do not make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof, Romans 13, 14, because if we do, we're dead. We do not fight with carnal weapons, as 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 says. But our weapons are spiritual, bringing down the strongholds of the enemy, bringing our thoughts into captivity to the knowledge and obedience of Christ. We walk in the Spirit to not fulfill the lust of the flesh, being filled with the Spirit of God continuously. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Ephesians 5, 18. I can't do without it. We reckon the old man dead daily, as Romans 6, 11 says. We put him out of business, if you will. We look to the scriptures alone for our personal, moral, ethical, and civil living. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Proud for doctrine, correction, instruction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished into every good work. Where am I going to go to be a Christian? How am I going to find out what I'm to do? The word of God. No other place. For we worship him in spirit and in truth, not based on locality or experience. As Jesus told the woman of Samaria in John 4, 24. And therefore we do good warfare. We put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 5, 10, and 18. And we fight the good fight in 1 Timothy 1, 18. It's a good fight. We endure hardness as a good soldier in 2 Timothy 2, 3. And we always remember that God says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans 12, 19. I leave it in his hands. God had conquered the land for the nation. Now they had to secure the land. <laughs> and so these are the three significant things revealed to us at this gathering of the nation after all that has gone on. God had chosen the place of worship for the nation, Shiloh. For us is the church body. How are you doing? Are you part of the church? Are you serving the Lord? God had given them the measure or the manner of worship for the nation, the tabernacle and the law. For us, it's grace and spirit and truth. And God had conquered the land for the nation. For us, he has conquered sin and death, resting as we abide in him. Great stuff right here, right? Right in the division of the land. You can get distracted. Oh, land, finally, you get distracted by God. Oh, I got the promotion. Oh, I got the new car. Oh, extra 20 bucks. Oh, extra 2,000 bucks. You understand what I'm saying? Distractions. You know, when you're driving down the street, you go, Oh, what are you looking there? Distractions. 
the assembly of faith. You belong to it? I hope so. Pastor Xavier Reese, closing with a challenge to take part in the gathering of the saints. Simple truths he draws out for us today from our study series in the book of Joshua. And you can request a copy of today's encouraging study titled, The Assembly of Faith. It's available for just $4 upon request. And by the way, this will also contain everything Pastor Xavier shared with us the last time we were together as well. The title to ask for once again is, The Assembly of Faith. Or simply mention today's date when you write, Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for telling us the call letters of this station when you contact us. This information is helpful when we check on the impact of this outreach in your area. Well, is there a biblical plan for justice? That's something you certainly don't want to learn the hard way. Find out more when you join Pastor Xavier Reese for more Simple Truths right here next time. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com